Welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yepeth, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Hello, welcome to Pete McCarthy. I'm truly delighted to be talking to Pete. He is one of the most knowledgeable people in the digital marketing space for books. He's been doing it for a very long time, a huge range of experiences. I'm going to let him describe them himself. But right now, he is the director of digital products at Ingram Content Group. Ingram purchased his uh, company that he co-founded Optically, and now is rolled into as part of Ingram. So he came in as part of that change, but he's had a storied uh, history before that. So uh, anyway, welcome, Keith. Well, thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. So let me, I want to talk about Optically and all the stuff you've been doing, but I just want to back up a little bit and talk about what drew you to books in the first place? What got you into this business? Oh, man, honest truth, my grandmother, she was an English teacher. Really? And she, you know, just introduced me to books at a young age, and um, I fell in love. So now, what was your first job in publishing when you got out of college? Editorial assistant, uh, working on a book called The Reader's Catalog, which was sort of a whole earth guide to books. Oh, wow. So uh, it's meta books, a book about books. A book about books. And so, uh, so tell me how your career evolved till, you know, you wound up at, at Penguin and Random House. Sort of give us a story. Yeah. So that book, The Reader's Catalog, um, it was uh, being done as part of the family of publications, um, which included at the time the New York Review of Books, um, Granta, and The Reader's Catalog. And this is 1996 or okay. so. So, you know, the internet is a brand new shining object, especially the visual web. So this idea of, you know, actually being able to display a newspaper online or a book online is a very new thing. And so I was an editorial assistant. And as, as I say to my wife, sometimes like I'm a decent editor, but I'm, I grew up with computers. And so I was sort of technical from an early age. So my grandmother's reading me books. I'm playing with my computer. And the two just happened to collide right at that moment. And so the Reader's Catalog, this book about books, the 40,000 best books in print. And we get a call from some folks in Seattle who are starting an online bookstore. <laughs> and wow, that's a, a auspicious start. <laughs> well, it would have been, um, except we didn't know who they were. <laughs> and, you know, their business plan sounded a little ambitious. <laughs> that, that turned out to be true. And, and Barnes and Noble, um, you know, they were friends down the down the road, so to speak. And so um, we wound up licensing that data- database to Barnes and Noble. And that kind of got me off and running on the idea of books online, marketing books online to consumers. I took it from there. I wound up at Penguin probably a year and a half or two years later. And at the time, if you were involved in the web, you were involved in everything from eBooks to Amazon to everything else. And that was really my job. So, Okay. So tell me about, well, once you got to Penguin, what was your yeah. role there? So, oh man, I had some terrific title. It was, you know, like vice president in charge of all things online. Um, but basically I was like the senior most web person. Now, how big a deal was online for Penguin at that point? It was an ever increasing big deal. So I, I joined in 98. By the time I left in 2005, it was a pretty big deal. Um, so in 98, it was about to be a big deal. And by, I'd say 2001, 2002, it was very clearly a big deal. By 2005, it was, it was a major deal. Uh, and two things really played into that, two major factors. The first was um, the growth of eBooks. 
Um, and when was the Kindle launched? Later, later than all of that. Okay, but interestingly enough, we had a very thriving ebook program just with our romance list. Yeah, um, romance seemed to be on the cutting edge of the ebook explosion. Absolutely. I mean, I had a probably a well over a million dollar business just doing some of our best-selling romance into the formats that existed. At the time. And what was the platform at that time? Rocket ebook, uh, Palm. So, I mean, they sound like ancient artifacts, right. but they were right. accurate. You know, Palm Pilot actually had a fairly decent penetration at the time. And so you could sell some Nora Roberts ebooks uh, of the Palm. I remember the Palm. We have to learn your own handwriting. Totally. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> um, and then obviously the uh, rise of Amazon and all the interesting facets of Amazon that were uh, both interesting from a how it faces with consumers perspective, but also as a publisher. I'm just looking at return rates that were in the single digit right. percentages things of that nature that we had just never seen before. Um, and you've been thinking about this for a long time. So back in those Penguin days, what did you foresee happening and how has it rolled out relative to that expectation? Yeah, let me think. So I got a lot of things right, a lot of things wrong. And, and I was <laughs> early on a few things. So the first time I saw the visual web, um, I thought that it was going to be all about movies. That was my right. first, that's where I leapt to right away was this is a video, this is going to be a video platform. And of course, you know, the, but at the time the bandwidths were so low. Couldn't do it. So it took the YouTube compression algorithms to get that done. So I wasn't wrong, but I was really too early. Right. And I was text medium so fast. I didn't see search coming at all, but I did see algorithms coming. It was, it became really clear to me. We, we digitized the whole archive of the New York Review. And it was like 35 years of a newspaper and it's linked everything. And it became obvious to me that you can't, that, sorry, you can, of course, just surface things based on things like relevance, crowdsourcing of popularity, so to speak, or authoritativeness. These concepts were sort of ringing around in my head and I was getting used to them. So the things that Google wound up incorporating into their algorithm, they were sort of in the air, I guess. It was kind of obvious that we needed some things like that. Right. I remember in the days of Yahoo, it was very much like a file cabinet. Yeah. And it wasn't really intelligent search. Right. Right. I mean, it was fun that way, but it was also just down the rabbit hole. I mean, it was basically gopher, you know, just visualized. It was, it was cool, but it, it didn't quite work. And when Yahoo search came along, that was pretty cool. I remember the first time that I bought a search ad on Yahoo. I think I bought Jane Austen and I advertised uh, Penguin Classic next to it. And I just thought that was the coolest thing, like <laughs> right. a relevant ad. Somebody searched for Jane Austen and I was able to put in front of them, you know, Pride and Prejudice and, and, and show it to them. I, just, I was so proud. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, I mean, that's been obviously a revolution in advertising. And, and maybe just to go on a side topic for a second, we'll talk about Amazon paid ads yep. later. But just in terms of Google ads and pay-per-click across the board, how big an impact has that had on book publishing? It seems very hard to monetize those pay-per-clicks these days with the competitive rates. Yeah, I would say that to answer the question at the macro level, I would say it's had a massive impact. Um, okay. But the ads weren't bought by publishers. They were bought mostly by Amazon. Oh, that's a good point. So Amazon buying ads against like, let's say Dan Brown searches and using a, the sale of a Dan Brown book as lead gen to basically do customer acquisition. And so when you looked at, Google, AdWords, top advertisers. This is, I'm going back maybe four or five years ago. Amazon was 
I think the number one advertiser. That's a really good point. And in fact, I remember I have seen a few of our big titles, right? They, you know, like who's advertising our title? And that's right. It was Amazon. That's a good point. It's but, a but, tough one for publishers, right? It's a harder play for the publisher because they don't get the lifetime customer value. Right. So right. the clicks to expensive. So they're just selling a $25 book. It's very, it's very challenging. Yeah. Now, I have noticed that there's some books that have such a multiplier effect mm. that, you know, you can spend 5 or $10 selling that book because you know it's going to be a word of mouth buzz from them. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's, the, there's the word of mouth. There's the carryover. You can play with things like market share that that author or that series has within that vertical. So right. if you're a travel publisher, you know, let's say, you know, cost per click can be fairly high because if you can get someone into your series, um, the lifetime customer value is, you know, well worth it on the ROI side. But yeah, selling a one-off, you know, midless novel via Google. And it's been pointed out, there's so little branding and publishing that there's very few abilities to exploit that except the author's own branding. That's right. So if you're, you know, advertising Lee Child, you've got quite a nice backlist that you can monetize yep. for every sale. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, so tell me about your move to Random House. Right. Yeah, sure. So I joined Random House in, I just try to get the chronology right here, 2005, I believe. And first thing there was to focus on, I guess it was sort of the transformation to a consumer focus. So we need to understand our consumers, the end readers, much better than we do now was sort of the, the mission statement. Which is challenging in publishing because you have no interaction with them. Really hard. Yeah. So you have to figure out ways to have interactions okay. with them. And so gradually over time, I was there for um, six years, I believe, maybe maybe seven, a, lo- a long six or a short seven, one or the other. So the challenge there was to develop direct relationships with consumers that would benefit a wide variety of publishing programs, right? So, you know, Random House sounds like one company, as you well know, but it's worth stating, you know, it was about 130 imprints when I was there. And, you know, my team sat in the middle and what we were tasked with was we were a marketing innovation group and sort of an R&D lab to explore different things that we could do to develop these relationships. So we explored everything from creating content sites that would speak to fans of specific genres or fans of things even outside of books where books happen to go along with them. So movies, for example. And so these are basically what we call verticals now. Yeah, vertical sites. Yeah, absolutely. So we were doing that and doing things like email collection. I mean, a lot of this stuff is sort of like playbook now. Um, But at the time for a publisher to do it, we needed to do some fairly interesting things. You know, for example, we needed to include other publishers' books on our vertical sites. Oh, that must have been controversial. It was a little tricky. Yeah, it was very interesting. Some some of our internal publishers totally understood it. I mean, we used to use the example of, so let's say we wanted to launch a horror vertical that's never put in any Stephen King books. Right. right. Is that credible at all? Right. <laughs> but then how do you get around the fact that you're you know, you're basically funding your yeah. competitor sales. Well, so it goes back to that customer value um, calculation right. that I grew. I really have grown to love, which is that, you know, if I can develop the direct relationship consumer and know a bit about them, if, you know, the, they like horror. If I have that person's email, I know they like horror and I have enough horror that I can please them. So I've got Dean Koontz sitting in my right. backlist. I'll throw a Stephen King article out there and, you know, collect a few hundred email addresses and then 
you know, three weeks later, I'll put the Dean Koontz article out there and push it to those people. Got no problem doing that. It's, it'll work every time. That, that's really clever. So uh, what would you say you pioneered there that you're proud of and has most stood the test of time? Some of the things that probably were internal facing, actually. So some of the external stuff was, was really cool. Some of the internal stuff was pretty nifty. So, you know, we would use news aggregators and trend aggregators. So think of something like uh, Google News back in the day, or right. think of it now as Google Trends. We would take Google Trends information, top stories that included words, strip out the keywords, and then use those keywords to do a search of our catalog to find titles that match the news, and then facilitate the promotion of those titles via, uh, let's say, a platform like AdWords so that we could capitalize on trends. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, some things like that, that now I think they're, they're fairly well understood and there's a lot of people who are doing them and there are people who are publishing into white spaces based on things like search volume and search traffic, but I think they were pretty clever. Now, when you look at the world of book publishing now, you know, what the big publishers are doing, what the smaller publishers that Ingram supports are doing, how much would you say the publishers are getting it right? And how much would you say, oh, they're missing huge opportunities in marketing? That's a tricky one. I would say that there's a ton that publishers get right of all sizes. The first thing is they get their lists right. They know what to publish and then they understand what it is that they're publishing and they understand their list well and they understand how to contextualize a book, which that's no small feat. So, you know, a lot of times when I talk about marketing, I tend to focus on the data, right? The platforms. There's a whole bunch of it that comes before that that is just editorial in nature. It's creative in nature, they, they get that very right. I don't think that publishers are yet adept enough at using data to inform their marketing. So I still think there's a bit of a uh, shotgun approach to marketing where, you know, it's, we'll all sit around the table and we'll dream up a bunch of things that we right. work and then we'll throw them out there and hopefully they work. Do you say that publishers are better? I mean, it seems to me that most publishers and we're somewhat guilty of this too. There's so much pressure to promote the front list yeah. that the backlist kind of gets neglected. But when you look at the backlist, it's an enormous percentage of the total revenue. Do you think that's the biggest sort of opportunity for publishers is around the backlist? I definitely do. And I actually have, I have for years, probably a decade, and I really haven't changed my tune on this one. <laughs> and, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different reasons. For the first thing to a consumer, a backlist book, isn't necessarily a backlist book. It's a new book he or she has never seen before, right? Right. So they don't know. And it's bigger now. There's less dependence of it being in the bookstores. Correct. Correct. So there's a flattening of, of discovery, so to speak. And it doesn't really matter if it's front of store or back of store because there's no, it's not like there's no such thing. All respect to Barnes and Noble right. and the Indies. But for the most part, you know, where you look at discovery, there's front and back of store don't really matter. Um, one thing I love about Backlist is um, I'm a huge fan of the book Moneyball. I'm a big fan of that book too. Okay. So I look at Backlist like a player who played high school ball and played college ball. I've got a lot of data on this player right. before I drive. And Backlist is wonderful that way. You can see things like seasonality. When does it perform better, this title? You can focus your marketing on a couple months that matter, um, whereas Frontlist Ah, we're guessing. We think it's a big summer read, but we don't know yet. Give it three years. Now you know, actually, it's not a summer read. It's actually a cozy winter read. Right, right. Know? And now you know how to, how to focus. I mean, um, so the more data, the, the, the more accurate I can be in the marketing. Um, also, 
selection becomes easier. So again, the money ball analogy, you know, which backlist to work on, I think is often the most important thing. You, you know, pick the ones that are high opportunity. Sometimes backlists can feel really overwhelming. It's, you know, it's dozens of not hundreds, if not tens of thousands. Right. Um, but if you can winnow it down by a few criteria to the ones that seem to have opportunity right now. You and and what, really what makes that. that opportunity? Uncaptured consumer interest. So consumer interest, let's say in a topic uh, where this book is actually a good fit, but the people who are interested in the topic are not yet aware that the, this book exists. Right. So, but to, to figure that out, you've got to have some content knowledge of your entire backlist right. and be relaying it against what's going on. Right. So that's a big... Even or for us, we have, you know, 400 backlinks. Or you've got the sort of the big data engine going in the background, right? This is where you go full tech, right? And, <laughs> right. I'll uh, describe that a little bit. So, you know, that was our, you know, when I was up at Random House, um, the, the thing that we were working on there with, with, I think we called it newsroom, but basically the idea was, yeah, grab the topics and then do a search of our, of our catalog, our backlist and surface the potential matches we have in the backlist. So institutional knowledge played a role in sort of curating that, but there was a first responder algorithm that said, right, this is trending in the news. Hey, do we have anything that's even close? We come back with 24 titles, say these seem kind of close. And then someone would say, I know that that's our best book on this. Okay, so, you, so basically you would be surveying maybe Google Trends or what's in the news, putting in keywords about, you know, here's what the things that are going on. And then the, your big data would pop up. Oh, here's the 20 or 30 books yep. that most fit that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's smart. And that's something that actually, that's something that we should probably be doing. It's, it's a, it's, it's helpful because to your point, it's so difficult to know what's in the backlist. I mean, it's a wonderful moment when you remember like, you know, click, I have this thing. Um, but it's really difficult to do. And it's one of the things that we, we tried to do with Optically was um, go get enough data points. So we collect sort of 60, 60 or so per book from across enough different sources on the web that are reflective of consumer interest to try to surface for people within the backlist or their front list, things that might matter right now to consumers. Right, right. Um, now, uh, so one thing, so that one thing that maybe publishers could do better with or invest more in his backlist. Is there another huge category that you think is maybe a, an opportunity? It's a catch-all. It's a little bit of a catch-all, but I think testing. I think a lot of times, just because of the way our PLs are structured, we can be a little risk-averse when it comes to spending marketing dollars. And one of the things that was great about having the opportunity to do marketing R&D was with fairly nominal spends, being able to figure out the kinds of things that worked. After all this testing that you did Random House, were there lessons that have yeah. broad applicability that you can share now? Did you learn anything about any rules about covers? Every, everyone's yeah. an expert on this. But right. That one changed all the time. There were some things that applied specifically to the digital space and legibility online, legibility at certain pixel sizes and on certain screens but not too much. I didn't learn too much there. But the things that people wax eloquent about, uh, you know, white's a good color, white's right. a terrible color. That's right. you know, <laughs> that, that, there's no really right. data to support it. I always say, again, and then I go back to my test thing, um, right. you know, which is sort of like, well, for that book, 
throw two covers up there, you know, run a Facebook ad campaign targeting people who like that genre, show them a yellow one, show them a white one, and you'll see. So are you a believer in those, you know, sometimes I wonder whether the, you know, in the absence of data, bad data, I get, or weak data is better than no data. Right. But I sometimes think the context of those Facebook cover ads is so different that it's of limited insight. Yeah. You know, I don't disagree. I think um, sort of when one uses these things and for what purpose, I think it's really important. So for there, it would be for me like a tiebreaker. Right. Or helpful information directionally to say, hmm, maybe I should challenge my assumption here and go with the Sometimes other. we'll have our authors go out to their platforms, which are, mm-hmm. you know, that's, their ta- that's the target market for their book, um, and let them do a contest when we're debating internally, which is better. And this way, the, you know, at least we have some data to back it up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it's often important. And the, and the nice part is we, you know, we can always ignore it. And just right, say that's right. interesting, but I'm going to treat it as noise, not signal. It's it's not meaningful to me, uh, right? Even though there may not be a basis for that, <laughs> right. basis for that. It's more: um, Are you going to let yourself rule, be ruled by data, or are you just going to go on instinct, as we've done it for a hundred years in this right. business? Right. Um, well, you know, I've come to believe, and I'd be interested whether you agree that the title by which I include the subtitle is the single most important thing. Right. Getting that title and subtitle right is more important than anything else on the cover. Right. And, and I deal with nonfiction, so that's yep. my bias. Do you have any data that supports that or opinion about that? So let, let me think about um, So data, uh, yes, I do, um, especially in nonfiction. It's definitely important, particularly the subtitle. Right. And having it be fairly descriptive of what the book is. The title can be as nifty as it wants to be. Right. You know, snatched right. from thin air colon, you know, but then it needs to say like digital book marketing in the 21st century, you know, right. after that, right. Um, right. but uh, the black swan, <laughs> then yes, yes. Black swan is a perfect example. It must have a subtitle. I'm a huge fan of the black swan. I think it has a lot of rel- relevance to publishing. Yeah. 80% of the time I bring it up to non-book people, even the book people, they think about the movies. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> exactly. I once was out, this is not a name dropping thing. It's just a, it's a funny thing is I knew, I knew his editor, um, Nassim Taleb and, and Twitter. Oh, I'm sure his editor did not have it easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we went out and um, Twitter was just, I can't remember if Twitter was just breaking or whether he was just coming to Twitter, but his take on Twitter was, was pretty amazing to listen to. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Talk about having a strong voice. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, in our marketing, I've come to see, you know, the analogy I like to use is a, a bon- we're lighting a bonfire mm-hmm. and everything we do, and, and we do a lot of Pinbella, um, you know, from the helping the authors with speaking tours. Right now we've got a billboard in New York for Geraldo. Yep. You know, just all the things we do, I think of it all as the kindling. Yep. And the logs are word of mouth, you know, and if those logs are wet, it's very expensive to get a book going on. I mean, it, yeah. Some books have a lot of natural kindling. You yeah. can get person on TV and so on, but but then they'll they'll fl- flame out very quickly. But when those logs are dry, I mean, marketing is a beautiful experience. Yeah. Um, how do you fit that, you know, that reality in where most where some logs are way drier than others, and they right. just have this huge word of mouth appeal? Right. How do you com- how do you fit that into the uh, that reality into the idea of data driven marketing? Right. 
That's a great question and a great, that's a great observation and a great question. So I'd say two things. One, I love, I love to identify a lot of um, closely trailing indicators of word of mouth to tell me whether the logs are wet or dry. So, you know, I want to see something like Wikipedia page views for Gerardo from your billboard. Um, but but yeah. does that tell you about the book or it just tells you about right. whether the author is popular, which, which I feel like that's right. more kindling. Well, so, so this is why I love the triangulation. This is why I like to go get 60 data points, right? Because I want to put it next to Goodreads and I want to put it next to Amazon sales rank. And I want to put it next to other fast changing um, sort of dynamic data environments and see if there's alignment or misalignment. And that's going to help me figure out a, whether the, the the wood's dry, whether it's going all the way through and I've got a fire that's going to keep running, whether some of the wood is dry, which is right often the case, right? And for me, that's where which the data- Which probably is. more means which target market you need to go after. Totally. And so, and that's what I love is to figure out there's there's this piece of it that I can go after. And if I do that one thing, I'll, I'll actually you know have a positive effect with my marketing. In the past, it was sort of like, let's try to do all things. And we did all things and we didn't do them very deeply. And then we hoped that one might take off. Uh, you know, what I'd rather do is go after the one or two things that will actually at least have a higher likelihood of making a difference. And then hopefully, hopefully they do. Right, right. And that learning from as you go and learning from experience. Yes. And that idea about niche marketing is so, so key. For me, Fifty Shades of Grey is one wet log. Right. But... That doesn't mean a lot because for a lot of people, it's very dry. Yeah. And so yeah. figuring out, you know, who, for whom the log is dry is important as having a dry log. It's sort of, you know, targeting it right. That's right. But you talked about alignment and misalignment. Yeah. And I'm not sure everyone necessarily got that. So explain that a little more. So, so sort of looking at, um, let's take a marketing funnel because that's really where the way I think of it. So you've got a billboard. Somebody sees a billboard their interest is peaked, they do a search, they wind up on a Wikipedia page. Do they wind up on an Amazon page? Do they wind up in a BNN store buying the book? So that would be the funnel. And sort of where I would look for misalignment would be that two out of three of those things are happening at the rate, at the level that I'd expect, right? But one isn't. And then I'd sort of hone in on the one that isn't. So let's say they are going into Barnes and Noble stores and, and they're buying the books. There's a nice causal effect between Wikipedia page views on an author's page and purchases of books and be in physical Barnes and Noble stores. So let's say that's happening, but Amazon isn't happening. Well, why is that? Is it there, maybe there's a problem over there. Maybe the discoverability isn't right. Maybe there's another Geraldo book that's in the way. Maybe they're buying that one right. um, instead, right. which they're not doing in B&M because it's not even stocked anymore. Maybe there's a used copy that's in the way. Maybe the you know, the trade paperback has been discounted so low that it's actually the ebook that's selling and I can't, I don't have the optics into that. So, so all right. So let's, um, now let's talk about your experience as an independent consultant. So sure. when you left Random House, you did some independent consulting. Yeah. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. That was really fun. It was also a little scary to be honest with you because you, it's a, it's a hustle to, to, right. to be an independent consultant, you know, so did a lot of training, the kinds of things that, you know, I had learned um, with my team. I'm at Random House. Um, uh, so it was a mixture of training, it was a mixture of reports. So what we were trying to do was bring a lot of the, I would say, 
best practices from major big agencies, um, the WPPs of the right. world, and bring them into publishing. So, you know, we were looking at, we were doing these brand audits on best-selling authors, you know, like 125 page docs on audience segmentation and messaging that might resonate and looking at all the things we were just talking about, misalignment, right? That's very that cool. kind of stuff, trying to aim the marketing. And when you've got those huge authors with big brands, it, you can make that investment. It, yeah. makes, it really makes sense. Yep. Did you work a lot with independent publishers and smaller publishers? We did. Um, what did you find were the contrasts in the sort of approach to marketing from the big publishers and the, and the independent publisher? So big publishers, a lot of them looking for training of a lot of people. Right. You know, so what they want to do is really get 30 to 50 marketing associates at a room and have right. them learn the best practices, take them back to their desk and then do that for every book that comes down the chute. The indie publishers, what I what I really loved about working with them was a lot of times they had a couple very specific goals in mind. Um, right. And they were just trying to figure out, like, how do I do this? Like, I, I know what I want to do. How do I do it? Whatever it was. And was like, that it specific to that title? Or usually we tried to stay away from single title okay. work. Um, we would do it here and there, but we were more looking for, you know, sort of cross-list, whole publisher, things of that. It just happens to be more my strength is doing it at scale as opposed to this book or that book. And it does seem like the independent publishers are more likely to have, you know, big verticals that they're focused on. Totally. Yep. And so we did, so some of those reports that I was describing, rather than do them for authors, what we would do for indies was do them on the niche. So what we would do is go look at, I'm making it up, but like uh, romance. And we would go look at the romance book buyer and we would go aggregate information from a ton of different sources and talk about audience segmentation and sort of right. what tactics would be most likely to work, not work, and then try to tie that back to their list and some best practices that they could use to better match their titles with that audience and get basically efficient marketing. Did a lot of work with um, Christian publishers too. And uh, audience segmentation in that space is really fascinating also. Cause it's, oh, I bet. It's not one big lump of Christians out there. Right, right, right. <laughs> and there's probably some ways to reach them yes. that your typical New York publishers don't know about. They don't know. Exactly. It's very interesting. So tell me how you got the idea for Optically. So uh, basically consulting doesn't scale. Right. Yeah, so I got tired. I come out of the, I, I spent 15 years in management consulting. Oh, so, you, yeah. You know, <laughs> I had had the idea for, I always liked to build software to help folks market more titles more efficiently. Always enjoyed that. And I had had an idea for sort of this can I visualize the funnel and identify points of misalignment in the funnel across an entire list and help? you know, publishers to move toward doing the things that are most likely to, to clear up the log jams. Right. Had that idea. It really kind of lifted it, I mean, from a number of other marketing technology products that were out there. So some SEO tools do this. They look at funnels from search to so uh, search engine optimization tools. And I was using a lot of those tools at the time. And so... Um, basically said, you know, what if we did that, but we did it for books and we aimed it at, you know, the things, the places that matter for books and aimed it at Amazon to start. 
So, so big pictures, if I understand it right, we're looking at all the social media that's out there, all the various public information and relating it to, so you are relating to the sales level and in the form of the Amazon ranking, correct? but you're also evaluating the metadata on the, on the whole Amazon page saying how good that is, where it could be approved at the same time saying um, how strong the author is and their brands and putting it all on one panel for people to evaluate and figure out what they can do about it. Correct. Yep. That's, that's exactly what it does. And, um, and then, yes. And trying to then issue the sort of suggestions of, Hmm, you know, you might want to look at your categorization here or, it seems like you might have an opportunity to, you know, do some targeted Facebook advertising to people who like this genre of books or who like this author. So exactly. is it equally, I'm sure, I guess it is equally relevant to backlist and frontlist, but do you see it as being more valuable for one or the other? Um, I think it's probably, I mean, the feedback we've gotten is that it's m- more useful for backlist, um, but but super relevant for front list as well. I mean, I could see it making more sense for backlist or being more relevant backlist because in front list, you're so focused on it. You're thinking about all this stuff. Right. But for backlist, some of that's been sitting since the dawn of time. And it'd be nice to have a scorecard to say, hey, here's some low hanging fruit on things you can improve. Totally. I think where it's it's exactly right. And um, it definitely was when I was conceiving of it, it was full list. So definitely backlist was very much in it. I wanted to be able to you know, and bring in the full list and then begin to say, hmm, pay attention to this, pay attention to that. The, the tool itself is actually agnostic. It doesn't really care if the thing is front list or backlist. Right. So if a backlist book happens to begin to behave in a manner that's potentially more indicative of an opportunity than a front list title, the tool is just going to come right out and say it. Like <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I, I think I heard you say is that one of the things that optically can do is help predict how many copies a book will sell. Right. I mean, that sounds like a very valuable acquisitions tool. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. It can it can't predict how many copies exactly, but it can it can put it it can put a title into its weight class, so to speak. Right. And so it could say it's more like these over here than like that one over there. So it's more like 10,000 copies, less like 1,000 copies or, you know, so directionally speaking, it can, it can be very useful that way, but it's not going to be able to understand something like, how would I say it works in probability, right? So it knows that the likelihood today is that this book will do well, but what it doesn't know is that that author might wind up in the news for some reason that that author shouldn't be winding up right, in the news right. and tank the whole book. So it doesn't know, you know, right. it doesn't know things. Uh, now, now, I guess you probably, we talked about in the Seems Lab, you're conversant on the Black Swan. I'm right. Sure. So, uh, you know, I've observed this in our own business and, you know, how much the Black Swan, you know, is a factor. And, yeah. and for anyone who's not familiar with it, but the Black Swan says, you know, it's a complicated idea, but maybe a simple way of putting it is that a handful of data points out of hundreds or even thousands can be dominant in the whole effect. So if you take out, you know, our 10 biggest books, maybe even our five biggest books out of 450, we don't have a business. Right. That's scary and it's, uh, but it's the reality. And I think it's, 
you know, even for billion dollar publishers, they'll say, oh yeah, we had a bad year because we didn't have a Harry Potter book coming out. Yeah. So it applies all the way up and down the chain. But the nature, you know, if you believe Nassim Sleb, those the nature of those books is inherently unpredictable. You're right. never going to know. So, you know, I've got books where I'm like, this is going to sell 10,000 and I have maybe a certain amount of confidence and sometimes I'm wrong and it sells 3,000. Right. And sometimes I'm wrong and it sells 200,000. Right. And those jumps, those unpredictable jumps are um, really what are going to build your business. That's right. what everyone is hoping for. And, and yep. you can't predict them, but you need them. Yep. It, does data give, help us with that at all? Or is that just always going to be a mystery in the book business? So I think... So I think it's always going to be some something of a mystery. I think there are some things that where we can we can de-risk it a little bit with data. I think that one thing that is true today that was not true even 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, is we can see that it's happening earlier. Um, you know, before it used to be like there had to be stockouts at every store. Not quite. I'm exaggerating a little right, bit, right. but practically, right? You know, you're going back to press for the third time, and you don't have enough books in the warehouse, and you're you're really chasing the book. Doesn't seem like with the data sets that we have today that we need to be that surprised. Like there's a certain curve that one would expect if a book is going to sell ten thousand, and if within day two that curve looks materially different than maybe it's going okay. to perform somewhat differently. Well, that's very interesting, and it's uh, it sounds like not only maybe is optically potentially useful for acquisitions. It's potentially useful for print runs and trying to yeah. figure out, um, trying to stay ahead of, because that's a battle we all have is making sure we printed enough books, but not too many books. Certainly, certainly can be useful for that. Yep. Um, yeah, that uh, that magic of when a book clicks, you know, and, and sometimes, at least for in our experience, it isn't like, what the heck's happening? It's almost gradual. So. Yeah. We have a book called The China Study. We printed, I think, 5,000 to start, uh, sold in three. Yeah. Um, but by the end of the year, we'd sold, I think, 15,000, 20,000 copies. Right. By the end of 10 years, we'd sold 2 million copies. Right. And those are the, those are the very profitable books. Yep. But also, those are the books that were that black swan. You know, it truly was an unpredictable event. Yeah. And, you know, that's what keeps publishing. It keeps it really exciting. And, and I think the thing that, you know, one of the things that I would offer is that can you make them bigger, right? So, right. so you so you see something on which one, you know, where doubling down would be a good idea if you can see that early and you can make them bigger faster potentially. The other thing is you can keep them alive. It startled me in my consulting how many publishers have gold in their backlist that they know it's gold, but they're not doing anything to keep it shiny, right? Um, and and that's risky. Um, yeah. And I think part of the thinking is one, that backlist feels kind of magical. You're not really yeah. sure what's, you're not really sure you can even impact it. It yeah. seems to be happening by itself. Yeah. And that blacklist is really funding the whole business. Yeah. So if all of a sudden you're applying your front list cost structure to your backlist, it totally. seems like it's going to really be damaging. Um, so the temptation is just to be minimalist or, or leave it alone. But yeah, you know, that book, the China study that I mentioned, we have been working, we've worked that for years. Yeah. But but it's you can't do that with that many titles. Exactly. No, it's it's. I, I agree completely. It's someone once said to me, you know, backlist is our most profitable line of business because we don't spend any money on. It. And I said, <laughs> well, okay, that's great. What if we could target the money? 
and the time so that we were spending only, you know, the most efficient amount of money and time that we possibly And, and with online, I mean, the crazy thing is you can measure the impact. Right. So it's not like you have to guess like you do with frontless. You right. have to guess. But on backlist, you have a rate of sales yep. and you can see what's happening. And so, yeah, yep. it's lunacy not to take your advice. You I, get in and get out. Yeah. Yep. Figure it out. And if you've got a lot of titles, you've got a lot of opportunities to succeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, Europe optically focuses on Amazon, very logically. Right. Not only is Amazon, you know, the biggest buyer of books now or biggest seller of books or both, but it's growing every year. Right. So uh, where do you think we're going? Where Where is this headed? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one thing also is just on Amazon, It's uh, the reason we chose to focus on it first was it has a, a lot of data. Right. And the data is dynamic. So, you know, if books sell very few copies, the likelihood is that those sales are actually occurring on Amazon. So in order to be useful for the widest number of books, Amazon was a natural target. Um, we're certainly going to support other retailers as we go forward. There's no question. Um, oh, man, where do, we, where do I think we're going? I think an, an ever-increasing, hopefully, sophistication in terms of marketing them publishers. I mean, I think people are starting to figure out that these tools exist and that using them is helpful, not scary. Right. I think that people are starting to understand that if you actually want a diverse, if you don't want every sale to go through Amazon, then being good at marketing is incredibly important. You know, publishers who want to sell direct, for example, it's one thing to have the capability to sell direct to consumer. It's another thing to actually make a good run that requires marketing, right. Um, right. And really solid marketing. But you know, selling directly, it's very hard to have the margin selling directly that you have selling through Amazon. Totally, it's it's yep. I, I had those business units. <laughs> we have we only have we have one real vertical that I would say has any substance. It's called the Bell Vegan, mm -hmm. and we're one of the top vegan publishers. We've got an email list of vegans and so on. We do sell directly, but that's not our focus. It's yeah. really about me being able to, you know, sell a thousand more copies of a vegan book than anybody who didn't have that asset. That's right. And so it just gives me a little edge, both in terms of the profitability of those books, but also, you know, my pitch to agents and authors about Absolutely. what we could do. Yep. But, you know, I, you talked about the importance of marketing, how it's shifting and publishers are recognizing it. And I, I hope that's true. I think to me, it seems like it's essential. We all want a dynamic ecosystem of book right. sales. If we wind up with a 80% Amazon world, why do authors need publishers? You know, you can make some arguments around funding, and, but distribution is a lot less important. Right. And a lot of the other qualities that publishers give are purchasable out there. Yep. So it comes down to marketing and marketing skills. And publishers are not seen as good marketers. Don't I have it. so many authors telling me my publisher didn't do any marketing for my last book. Right. Uh, and this is sometimes big name, big name, sure. you know, wealthy big name authors. Yep. So do you agree with me that the future of publishing, we, it's not optional to get good at marketing. And do you agree with that? And then if so, what needs to happen for that to, yeah. to transform how publishing is perceived and the reality of publishing? Number one, I couldn't agree more. Of course, I'm biased being being a marketer, but 20 years ago or or so, um, someone very very senior at Penguin said to me, um, "We're in the talent relations. Right. That's our business. Right. And don't forget it." And and I said, "Okay, you know, um, 
I think I was griping about having to build a website <laughs> right. author. I didn't feel deserved one. Um, very much a, a youthful move on my part. I think that if you want to be in the talent relations game, you do a couple different things. You jettison logistics to the extent that you can to people who right. are expert in logistics. I always think of Nike, right? You right. Know, and, and, and who works at Nike? People who understand branding. It's not people and product design. Right. So it's focusing on core competencies. Yeah. And for publishers, the core competency has traditionally been distribution. Yeah, I think it's like talent management plus a super version of that. But but yeah, increasingly the selling authors books, you know, front of store to me is an SEO website, you know, a good campaign with an Amazon, um, some merch, maybe on BNN.com. If you could do that for an author, right? All right. I mean, that's great. But you need to be able to do then all the digital components that that go along with that. So it's the SEO, it's also the social pieces, it's the it's just running, it's, it's connecting them with the, the maximum number of consumers who will like their book. And it's not like authors don't have a lot of marketing capabilities that they bring to the table. Right. So it's not just a matter of telling them, you know, maybe if you write an enormous check and you that you feel like that's, you you paid them for the book and now they have to do the marketing and we're all good. Right. Uh, but if you're, you know, if, you, if, if that's not the case, if, if they're expecting to make money off, you know, beyond the advance, then it's not enough to say, okay, now do your marketing. Right. You have to help them with that, but you also have to bring more things to the table that they don't have already. Exactly. Yeah. You have to understand um, all of the different levers that one can pull. So the question or the portion of the question around what needs to change is that it's really bringing in digital marketing best practices, but then through the filter of as they relate to books. Right. Because, you know, I've, I've watched a number of, there will be no disrespecting here because I think it would be brutal, but I've watched a number of companies saying, we, and we want to hire someone from outside of publishing right. because we want right. the fresh digital perspective. And I'm like, man, I wish that person luck. Because if you don't understand the PL that lives behind it, if you don't understand things like agents and their cut and who they are and what other authors are represented by that, you're not going to make good decisions, right? Or you're going to step in holes and your all your digital marketing best practices will fly in the face of the realities of a very complicated business. That's right. I, I totally agree. I mean, there's so much particular to book publishing, and there's no reason book publishing people can't learn those skills. I think there was right. a time when those skills seem magical and you just wanted to hire somebody with that magic. Yeah. Or, you know, back when, you know, apps were starting out right. or, you know, people wanted to just do a, the urge to be part of that technological generation. And we were living in terror that what happened to the music publishers were going to happen right. to us. Sure. To some extent, it's a certain amount of luck that that didn't happen. Yep. And, you know, obviously what happened to music is that the money drained out of the business. Yep. And for book publishers, eBooks actually enhance profitability. Sure even if it decreased revenue a bit. Yeah, everyone hates Mr. Bezos, or not everybody, but many people do, but his, his DRM and his whisper sync on his Kindle device really saved the day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's, yeah. And, you know, Amazon, you know, um, can be challenging to work with, but they're my best customer. Sure. And very profitable customer. And, you know, and they have driven a lot of innovation that this industry depends on. So, yeah, yeah I'm not in the hater camp. I think yeah, yeah. They, you know, uh, the hater campus present company just not included. <laughs> um, all right. Well, just uh, as our final question, where do you see the world of publishing going? Any predictions about where we're headed? Oh, um, man, it's just, predictions are always so risky. Um, 
I mean, obviously there's the, the consolidation, I would say the march toward continuing consolidation for economies right. of scale of the big players. So it was the big six, now it's the big five. I suspect it'll be the big four at some point. I don't have any facts on which, well, I don't have any news, right? right? It's just based on financial realities. Um, you know, I do think that the idea of, um, that we will see more and more of this jettisoning, jettisoning of the things that aren't core to managing the talent. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I mean, this is, and I don't mean this in any way to be self-serving, but, you know, the, the kinds of things that Ingram can do for publishers, which is sort of like, frankly, running some of the unsexy stuff, right? You know, ship the books, get the books there, get the eBooks out there to everywhere they need to go, reconcile the accounts, look at compliance, even things like what we do with Optically, which, you know, feels kind of sexy to me, but actually really it's a lot of big data grabbing and pulling together and a lot of math and stuff that, you know, it's like, don't worry about that. Worry about, you know, right. your acquisitions, proving your value and your creativity and becoming great at using that data to reach consumers. I think increasingly publishers are going to be focusing on that. And, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that, uh, well, you know, I came to Ingram uh, and Ingram through Two Rivers distributes our books. Yes. You know, I came to them for a lot of reasons. But uh, since, you know, seeing about the acquisition optically, uh, I found that just very encouraging because it shows that, you know, Ingram is looking for ways to bring economies of scale to, you know, independent publishers across the board, yep. which is so valuable. I think independent publishers do have a big advantage in some ways over the big houses in the level of intimacy they can create with their uh, yep. authors. But the downside is we don't have that huge scale. So yep. anything Ingram can do to to make us big five level. Yep is very valuable. And I'm really glad that you're part of that yeah, no, part of the family. I'm, I'm excited for it. And I, and I do believe it's the future. I mean, part of the reason this was such, I think, an attractive um, uh, match, uh, you know, for me was that idea of scale. I mean, some of this unsexy stuff, you know, move it down the, the ladder, scale it out and, you know, try to drive the cost down on it so that everyone can have access to it. I, 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 I love the idea that, you know, being a good marketer is, is, not whether or not you have access to the data, but how you use it. Great. Now, if you were going to start up an independent publishing house, uh, yeah. Pete McCarthy books, yeah. uh, what, what would you, from all you've learned, what would you bring to that? I would use a lot of probably seemingly odd data sources to um, go after acquisitions. Um, probably need a stable of writers because not everyone I would want to have have a book would be a natural born author. Uh, right. So a lot of ghostwriting might be occurring. Targeted very much online. I, I just frankly don't understand, you know, it's the physical channels are not my long suit. Um, you know, my longer suit is online. So I'd be focused very much on the digital channels um, and based on consumer behavior. So I'd be trying to publish to match consumer behavior, not based on my gut because my editorial gut is what I like to read is of interest to me, but it doesn't seem necessarily interesting <laughs> to anyone else. Right. And, you know, every, all of us in publishing who are making these decisions have to try to balance that out. You know, what do we like versus what do we think? How many people like us are out there? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Pete, this has been an absolute pleasure. Great. I really I'd appreciate like your time. I really um, appreciate it. So, well, so now, uh, thanks so much and uh, have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to the Building Books podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it, or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Four Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you.